This week we see the first two of Jesus' signs in the book of John. In the first, Jesus shows the abundance of God's grace in the context of a wedding. And in the second, he shows zeal for holiness and purity in God's house when he symbolically cleansed the temple, but used it for an analogy of his own body and pointed to the resurrection. John 2 gives us these pictures of Jesus designed to stir our belief in Him. Jesus is both the bridegroom and the temple. Through Him, we can experience God's blessing, and through Him, we dwell with God. First of all, we see that Jesus is the bridegroom, the true vine through whom God's grace flows. Take this from the first 11 verses and also a similar passage, a parallel passage in John chapter 15. What do we see going on here in these verses? Well, first of all, I think we see that weddings were a time of rejoicing. But Jesus could not share in that joy until he had first experienced sorrow. Notice this in chapter 2, verse 4. Sometimes I think we skip over this and we look at the miracle and what was accomplished there. But verse 4, he says, My hour has not yet come. What is that pointing to? Well, he uses that phrase repeatedly throughout the book of John. The hour to which he refers is the hour of his betrayal, the hour of his trial, the hour of his crucifixion and death. And so uh, there are those who have looked at this and they've said, well, his mother comes to him because she expects him to do some kind of miracle, but the reality is he hasn't been going around doing miracles. It says this is the first of Jesus' signs. And so why does she come to Jesus? It is perhaps in a similar vein to when his brothers say, hey, this is a great opportunity for you to go down to the Passover and show that you're really a great teacher and a prophet and, and that sort of thing. She's, she's urging him to say, is this the time for you to, to do all the things you've come to do? And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. It's not the time of his crucifixion. And we're going to explore how until that takes place, he cannot enter into the rejoicing, the, the, the celebration that we see in the context of a wedding. He points to that in a future sense. Though Jesus had not yet died, the, old, the new was replacing the old. This is a detail that I think it might be easy for us to miss. Look at verse 6. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. What would they do with that water? There were various rituals of cleansing in which there would be washings. We talked about this even in the Sunday school hour. The Pharisees said, why do your disciples not not purify their hands, wash them before they eat. Why are certain things not washed in water when they're ceremonially unclean? That was the purpose of why these vessels of water were standing there. And when Jesus turns those into wine, I think there is a degree of a symbolic picture of the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law, came to replace the law as a way of life, and people were then going to be believing in him, trusting in him. There was not going to be any need anymore for these rituals of purification because Jesus was going to accomplish pure, uh, true cleansing and, and purification, which we also see to some degree in the next of his signs. We see furthermore that the, that the God who gave all things richly to enjoy makes up the gap that was caused by the inattention of the family. This would have been something that was... I don't know if scandal is, might be too strong of a word, but certainly an embarrassment that they had not adequately prepared for all the guests at the wedding, right? Here's the, here's the celebration and the time had come and they ran out. And so God's grace and abundance makes up this gap. Who is Jesus in this story? Is Jesus 
a behind-the-scenes character. There are a number of people who I think rightly believe that Jesus is cast in the place of the bridegroom in this story. I think that's further strengthened by what we see at the end of chapter 3, where John the Baptist talks and refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. He says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the true bridegroom. There are many other allusions to this throughout the rest of Scripture. The bridegroom was the one, his family, ultimately responsible for providing the needs of the wedding, right? They fail. Jesus steps in in their place, acting as the bridegroom, and supplies what they need for this feast, supplies what they need for this celebration. Jesus is the bridegroom, but his time for marriage, for celebration, for rejoicing had not yet come at this point. Why is that the case? Because he first had to go through the cross. That goes back to what we see in verse 4. Think about the picture in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus takes for himself the church, which he purifies through his own blood, and is joined in marriage to the church, and that's something they will look forward to as being yet future. And so Jesus couldn't enter into this, couldn't participate in this, couldn't share in this until he had done the work for which he had come to die, as the book of John talks about. This event both anticipates how Christians, I think, would look back on Jesus' work through the memorial of the Lord's table, as well as the yet future marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. So there's all of these pictures going on here. The Mosaic system being replaced by Christ. Jesus stepping into the place of the bridegroom when that bridegroom did not adequately prepare for the celebration. The fact that Jesus would experience a similar celebration, a similar time of rejoicing, but not until he had first gone through the cross. And all of these things, I think, are some of the background of this story. One of the biggest things that I think we need to recognize, though, to properly understand what it is that we're seeing here in this passage is the fact that wine in the Bible is a sign of abundance and peace as God blesses His people. Let me read for you some of these Old Testament passages that I think bear this out. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says that in verses 12 and 13, it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you His covenant and His loving kindness, which He swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which He swore to your forefathers to give you. This was a picture of God's blessing on the Israelites to the degree that they obeyed Him and kept His covenant in the Old Testament. This was not confined simply to the law, but also was a picture in the prophetic books. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 31. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read this. It says in verses 5 through 12, Again you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and enjoy them. And so this is a sign of God's restoration of Israel after the exile. When they return and they enjoy the fruit of the ground, the fruit of their labor, it's a sign of God's blessing and favor on them. Even in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, which falls between the time of the law and the time of Israel's restoration, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. 
I think this is a challenge maybe for a good number of us here today because I think we tend to view wine or anything alcoholic as being purely a negative thing. Clearly, using it in excess is sinful drunkenness, which is condemned in various places in the Bible. But as we think about it, the same is true for the rest of God's gifts, right? Food can be enjoyed as one of God's gifts, but it can also be misused for example, in the sin of gluttony. Rest, sleep, is one of God's gifts to His people. He gives His beloved rest, right? That's what a passage in the Scripture. And yet, if we misuse rest, then we find ourselves in the sin of laziness, right? Um, many other things, in which way, ways in which God has gifted us, are not evil and sinful in and of themselves, but the misuse of them, the excess of them, is condemned, is recorded as sin in Scripture. And so to enjoy God's gifts in moderation and as He has commanded is not sin. Now, here's... I want to clarify at this point. I'm not arguing for anybody in our church to go out and buy a six-pack or buy a bunch of bottles of wine. That's not my point. Here's my point, though. People have twisted what's going on in this passage and tried to rewrite what the Bible has said as a safeguard against the evils of drunkenness. Our understanding of the passage like this, I think, is more influenced by Billy Sunday than the Old Testament. And did he, did he have a right outcry against what was going on in society at the time? Yes. But we cannot twist what the Bible says merely because the people have gone to an excess in something, right? Jesus condemned the Pharisees for this when they said, here's what God said. Here's our rule that we set up. Here's how we've moved over time way over to here. In our effort to safeguard what God actually said, the further that we add boundaries and layers to what God actually said, the more we move away from doing what God actually said to doing our own thing. And the traditions of men are no substitute for the commands and principles that God has laid out for us. So again, I'm not arguing that because there is wine at this wedding, you and I must drink wine today. There are probably differences between the wine of today and the wine of their day, but what I am arguing is this, that you would have a proper understanding and, and be able to freely admit that the Old Testament says this is a sign of God's blessing. And in the context of this wedding, it was a sign of God's blessing and grace poured out in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we wouldn't try to rewrite the story to fit our ideas about things that we might have for whatever reason. Jesus, in chapter 1, was shown to reveal God's truth and grace. And so we should not be surprised that God's grace and kindness and blessing will be poured out abundantly through Jesus in the context of a celebration like this feast. How was this sign a sign of Jesus' ministry? How was it supposed to stir people to believe in him? Well, for one, I think the obvious part of it is the creative power that it takes to transform 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine in a moment, right? The fermentation process takes time. It's not something that he could just done a magic trick and substituted it, right? He actually changes what it is. And so we see his creative power. That points to the fact that Jesus is God. But even more than that, or in addition to that, 
there is the fact that Jesus is the one through whom God's grace is going to flow, replacing the purification rituals of the Old Testament with the grace and truth revealed in his person, pointing people away from all of their trust in those things that had been corrupted over time to true faith and belief in him as the one that God has sent to save his people from their sin. Chapter 1 said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Each of these signs is designed to build and to strengthen people's belief in Jesus Christ as the one who has come from God. And so that's the background. That's what's going on in this first of Jesus' signs. Creative power, Jesus as the true bridegroom who fulfills where man fails, who replaces empty rituals with the truth of God's word, returns people, rather, to what God has truly said. This sign points to Jesus, and people were supposed to believe in him. We'll talk about whether they did believe at the end of the message, but let's turn now to the second sign that we see here in chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is, I would say, the pure temple who tabernacles among his people. Jesus begins by cleansing the physical temple. We see this in verses 13 through 17. He, has, he finds what's going on, he makes a scourge of cords, and he drives them all out of the temple. He overturns the table, he drives them out. He drives out who? He drives out those who are doing business. Now, there was provision in the law. Remember when we studied in Exodus and Leviticus, there's provision in the law for people to travel to Jerusalem. They might not have had livestock of their own, or, or for whatever reason, when they got there, they had traveled a long distance, they couldn't bring them with them. They could exchange money for the animals that were meant for the sacrifice. So that part in and of itself was legitimate. But as the other Gospels emphasize... This one emphasizes merely the fact that they're doing business in God's house, right? They had come to substitute the act of the exchange, the marketplace, for the true focus of what was supposed to be going on in the temple. The temple was supposed to be about worship of God. And they had made it all about the, the extraneous things, the, the, the necessary evil, if you will, of the exchanging of money for animals to do sacrifices. It was no longer about the sacrifices. It was no longer about worship of God. It was simply about the business side of things. And I think other Gospels make it clear that there's a degree of extortion that's going on, but that's not the main focus here. The main focus here is, my father's house, you've turned into a place of business, a mere marketplace. Jesus' zeal for the purity of God's house, I think, implies a fervency, even anger in his actions, a righteous anger, that this that was supposed to be focused on God has become corrupted by a mere human focus on, 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 on business, on selling and buying and, and exchanging things. The Pharisees stop him. They say, who gives you the right to come into the temple and interfere with what we're doing? I mean, if someone came in to what you were doing is like, stop, we're going to do something different, you'd say, show me the credentials that say you have the right to do this, right? So we can understand it from that perspective, but... Notice Jesus' response. It's very interesting. He says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we talk about this as the second of Jesus' signs, but it's actually not fulfilled until the very end of the book of John, right? Because the sign is not so much his coming into the temple and purifying it as it is his resurrection from the dead. That was their justification, that was their reason, that was the authority that he quotes to say, here's why I have the right to cleanse the temple. The temple was supposed to be the place where the people came and met with God. 
But God, who came and met with the people, purged the physical temple that was supposed to be dedicated to His own worship. And they were blind to it. And they say, give us a sign that says you can do this. Here's the fascinating thing. By the time the sign takes place, there is no longer any need for the physical temple. Let that sink in for a minute. By the time the sign's fulfilled, there's no longer any need for the physical temple. Let me show this to you from the book of Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 if you would. The end of Hebrews chapter 9, which uh, we looked at a while back together. Talks about the cleansing and the purification of things by blood. It says in verse 23, It was necessary for the copies of these things to, in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The temple, as much as the Jews revered it and looked to it as the sign of God's presence among them, was a copy of something that exists in heaven. Jesus in God's presence, ministering in a way that was necessary and real in a way that the priest, for all of their rituals and sacrifices, were an imperfect image of. Continuing in verse 24 here of Hebrews 9, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy, but into heaven itself, nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place year by year, with blood not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. They were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. Christ comes, offers himself as the once and final sacrifice. No longer any need for all of the things, all the activity that's going on in the temple. No longer any need for even the temple building itself. Turn over to chapter 10 as well, specifically verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You're familiar with the rest of the passage about the assembling of ourselves together. Jesus is God tabernacling or templing among his people. Jesus purges the physical temple. His authority is questioned. He says, I will destroy this temple and raise it up. They think he's talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body as the temple. When he ascends to heaven, there's no longer any need for the physical temple. There's no longer any need for the sacrifices. There's no longer any need for the purification rituals. Jesus has accomplished cleansing. Jesus has accomplished sacrifice. Jesus replaces the physical building with worshiping God, as it says later in John 4, in spirit and in truth. Which then leads us to the next question. The main theme of John, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is believe that you may live. So what do we see about belief in this chapter? What about the people? What about the disciples? What about Jesus' own family? 
I think the thing that this chapter demonstrates for us is that belief in Jesus may be false despite how it appears at first glance. Belief in Jesus may be false despite how it appears at first glance. The disciples believed in Him, we see verse 11, because He manifested His glory, because He did this sign. And yet, as we continue through the book of John, what do we see going on with the disciples? They would question, argue among themselves what was the point of His ministry and what was their role in it. They would fall away. When the time comes for Him to be betrayed, they all run away. So there's a belief, but it's not a particularly strong belief. What about Jesus' own family? Well, we see here in verse uh, 1 that Jesus' mother is there and He interacts with her. We see that His mother and His brothers in verse 12 are accompanying Him in this early part of His ministry. But then by the time we get to John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, for not even His brothers were believing in Him. They're interested at the outset of His ministry, but after time goes on, even His own brothers aren't believing in Him. Now we know that Jesus' half-brother James later trusts after Jesus' death, becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and all these other sorts of things, writes the book of James. But there's a significant period of time during Jesus' ministry in which His own family doesn't even believe in Him and follow Him. When did the disciples truly believe? Verse 22, when He was raised from the dead. We see this from the second sign. When He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, I think this is a question that all of us wrestle with. At what point did I actually begin to trust in Jesus? At what point did I actually begin to follow after Him? If it's a work of God, then the point that matters is the point at which God gives you spiritual life. For us, from a, from a subjective experiential sense, we, we pray, we turn from our sins, but uh, depending on the environment in which you grew up, there may be a point in which you question when that took place. Uh, part of this is the influence of the idea of, of making decisions or the altar call or, or uh, perhaps the idea that you have to get saved at the age of three, four, or five. Um, and I think the reality is that there are some who genuinely do get saved at that point, right? But the other reality is there are some who grow up in church and hear Bible stories and want to please their parents, and so their parents say, pray a prayer with me, and they say, sure. They go on through life. Maybe they get to be a teenager. Maybe they get to be an adult, and they say, I don't know if I really believe in this. How are we to understand that sort of circumstance? Well, like we talked about when we were talking about the subject of belief two weeks ago, if we look at Peter, and we look at Thomas, and we look at Judas Iscariot, there are certain points in their lives at which each of them appears to be an unbeliever. Peter denies Christ, Thomas doubts Christ, Judas betrays Christ. So what's the test of true belief? It's not necessarily one specific moment, but it is as we close out our lives, not in a last rites kind of way, but, but in when you come to die, who are you trusting in? Who are you believing in? Is it Jesus or is it someone or something else? That's the test of our faith. And there, the reality is there may be some period of time in which you don't follow God, you don't obey God, you don't search after God, 
that doesn't invalidate necessarily that earlier experience of God, but if there's never any repentance and turning back, the book of Hebrews says that you have crucified Christ again and there's no place of repentance to be found. So there's the danger that we think, I prayed a prayer as a kid, so I'm on my way to heaven. There's also the danger that we say, so-and-so looks like they're not following God right now, they must not be a Christian. And the reality is, we don't have all the information to make that assessment. The church has to make an assessment of it in terms of who are members, but we are operating based on what we could observe. Ultimately, God knows all of these things, right? So, as we look at these situations, these circumstances, how should we understand someone like Peter? I think we see Peter as someone who is weak in faith, who is impetuous and so forth, but who is genuinely a believer, despite his denial of Christ. I think we, he matures in faith after that moment, but I think he did genuinely believe in God prior to that point. The same is probably true of Thomas. What about someone like Judas Iscariot? He never really seemed to believe. He felt some degree of guilt for his betraying Jesus, but he never really seemed to believe. He never really seemed to truly repent. What about uh, the crowds that followed Jesus? Well, the crowds that followed Jesus, it says here that they believed, verse 23, many believed in his name, observing his signs. And so, if, if Jesus was like a lot of us here today, we'd say, all these people are coming and following, this is amazing, this is awesome, look at all these people that have trusted and believed in, in me, right? But Jesus has a fascinating response. It says he was not entrusting them himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So why didn't Jesus just get all excited about the fact that these people were following after him? Because most of them didn't really believe. They believed the sign in the sense of, wow, this is amazing. But they didn't accept Jesus. They saw the miracle and they said, could this be God's work? But they didn't really think that he was the Messiah. Where do we see examples of this? Well, we see this, for example, in chapter 6, verse 66. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. His teaching, his comments about, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and and you have to follow after me and the Father is the one who brings you to me. That's in chapter 6. Chapter 12, verse 37, says this, Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And then chapter 19, verse 15, it says, So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So the reality is that although we might be uncertain about the nature of someone else's belief, Jesus was not deceived by the lack of true belief in many of those who followed him. And so he did not entrust himself to them. He did not reveal all of God's work to them. He did not accept their belief simply for what it was at face value. So the question for each of us, I think, in light of this is, we see a sign recorded for us in the book of John, like Jesus turning water into wine. Or we see a sign, like Jesus saying, I'm cleansing the temple, and I'm going to, this temple will be destroyed, I'm going to raise it up in three days, referring to the resurrection. And we look at that, and we can say, okay, 
He turned the water into wine. That's a creative miracle. That's a sign that he's from God. He fulfilled his promise to be raised after three days. So that's a sign from God. He, he checked off those boxes, so we should believe in him because of that. But if our belief is superficial, if our belief is simply we're going to follow after Jesus because he does a neat trick, we're going to follow after Jesus because he was a great teacher, we're going to follow after Jesus, the message that some people have twisted, because he's going to give you a wonderful life, you're not really a true disciple of Jesus. And you might deceive others about that, but you're not going to deceive God. Why? Because if Jesus really is God, he knows what's in your heart. And so my burden is that no one sitting in here today would think, because I go to church, because I prayed a prayer when I was a kid or at whatever point in my life, that sort of is it, and it really doesn't matter what happens after that point. Because look at Jesus' family. At the beginning, they're following after him, and later on, they turn away from him. Same thing for the crowds. At the beginning, they're following after him, and later they turn away from him. And yes, some of them do genuinely experience salvation when Peter preaches the message in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, but a lot of them don't. So don't put your faith in the fact that you go to church. Don't put your faith in the fact of praying a prayer as though that in and of itself is the only thing that really matters. Should there be a personal experience of turning away from sin and turning to Christ? Absolutely. But the far more important thing for us than remembering the date and time and the circumstances of when that happened, and the far more important thing for us than just having something written down in our Bible about when all that took place, is do we have real and lasting belief in Jesus Christ that means we continue to follow after Him and learn of Him and live for Him as His disciples. Not disciples that follow around to see what He's up to, but disciples that when He makes the hard statements later in the book, when He calls to sacrifice later in the book, when He says, if you follow Me, you will face persecution and opposition and difficulty. But like for Jesus, after that comes rejoicing, that's the true test of whether we really know and follow after Jesus. And so these are the first of his two signs. We're going to look at the other five as we go through the rest of the book. But it's amazing that right after these first two signs, John raises this issue of, you say you believe, but do you really believe? That's a question I think each of us has to ask ourselves. Not so that we're constantly plagued with doubt, not so that we are forever uncertain because there is great hope and certainty to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we should recognize our capacity to be deceived, to deceive those around us, to say that we follow God merely for selfish reasons in a hypocritical way. And that's not genuine belief. That's not what God, John is calling us to do in this book. That's not what God will accept in the final day when we stand before him. The only thing that God will accept is do you believe in Jesus, not anything that you've done? Do you follow him, not your own way? And do you follow him in the way that he says to follow him, not in the way you'd like him to, to tell you to do that? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for these pictures in this chapter of Jesus as the bridegroom. 
as the temple, the resurrection, made even more clear in later passages in the book of John. Lord, I pray that you would really help us wrestle with this question of belief. I think there are some who are prone to doubting their salvation. And so my my goal is not to put a burden on them, Lord. I pray that you would make that clear in their hearts. But there are also those who should doubt and don't. Maybe not in this room, but certainly that we encounter in our daily lives. Lord, we pray that the truth of the gospel would weigh on our hearts so that our belief in Jesus would not be an intellectual curiosity or an academic trivia knowledge kind of thing, but would be a genuinely transforming power of salvation in our lives through having truly encountered Jesus, having an ongoing relationship with Him, and following Him despite whatever obstacles come up along the way. Lord, we pray that that would be true of each of us here today. If it's not, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would work and bring conviction. And and if it is, Lord, then may we rejoice and continue to follow You faithfully in Your power so that we might know and understand and see all the amazing pictures of Jesus, how He is the, the intersection and the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the pictures and, and, and hope that's held out in the new, with whom we will spend eternity. May we look forward to that and long to see that, even as the, the people at the wedding saw a temporary glimpse of Jesus' power, may we look forward to that day when we are joined with Him for all eternity even as those who saw Him cleansing the temple had a brief opportunity to worship Him face to face, we will have all of eternity to worship our God. Lord, may we rejoice and look forward to those things. I pray that You would bless this time, the rest of the time, even today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.